you have your Bibles, take them and turn with me to Acts chapter number 8 this morning. Acts chapter number 8. It's been a while since I've done that and uh, then preached as well. So uh, bear with me this morning. But I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Let's uh, go ahead and stand once you, once you find your place. Acts chapter number 8. Um, so just a little, I guess, disclaimer. I'm not going to get through as much as I intended to get through today. I know that for a fact because I think the Lord is kind of directing a little different direction as I was continuing my study this week and at the end of the week. You know, I had, I had kind of mapped out the, the rest of this series and the next series as we continue through the book of Acts. And, you know, I had in, in a game plan in mind of where I wanted to get through. But as I was studying and finishing up on Friday, I realized that there's no way I was going to get through all of the verses that I wanted to, but that's okay. I'd rather uh, split it up in a couple parts instead of just try to rush through it. So Acts chapter number 8, we had just talked about Stephen. I'm going to reference him here in just a a minute or so uh, in the message. But we had just talked about Stephen for the past couple weeks and everything that he went through and all the things that he endured and the the amazing um, uh, passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 7 and the amazing message that he preached uh, to the Jewish leaders and really the application that we can take from it ourselves as well. But in Acts chapter 8, this is right on the heels of Stephen's death and him seeing Jesus right before he was stoned to death. <coughs> We're introduced, Luke introduces us to one of the greatest, uh, the, the future greatest uh, missionaries that the world has ever seen. And that would be the Apostle Paul, but it was before he got a name changed and he is still Saul and Saul is a persecutor of Christians. So let's go ahead and read verse number 1. The Bible says in Saul was consenting unto their death. So he was trying to kill these religious fanatics or these these new Christians, these followers of Jesus Christ. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Remember, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had given the commission to the disciples, to the followers, to go where? Into all of the world, right? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost. Up until this time, several years have passed, but the gospel is only spread to Jerusalem. So we're about to see it spread even farther beyond Jerusalem as what Jesus intended. <clears throat> Verse number one, again, uh, there's great persecution of the church at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. They moved abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And that's very important to note. We'll come back to that. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and make great lamentation over him. They were crying, they were weeping, and rightfully so because of the events that just transpired. And for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. I mean, just imagine this. As Saul is just ravaging through houses and finding Christians that are there. Imagine that would happen today here in Decatur, wherever we live, that there is a, a religious fanatic that is going around and anyone that claims to be a Christian or is a follower of Jesus Christ, they're going to go into your house and get you out of your house and take you into prison. Verse number three, and he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere. Notice these are the next three words, preaching the word. Everywhere they went, went. They still went and preached the word. They preached the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. <coughs> Excuse me. We thank you so much for this day. And Lord, we thank you for all of the music that was sung this morning and the worship time and the praise time, Lord. And God, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we continue to worship, as we look at your word today. God, I pray that you'd help us to, to take what we can from your word, to learn the truths and apply them to our lives. And Lord, as you've even showed me this week in my own studies that there's so much here in the book of Acts and uh, so much here that, that we need to grasp. And again, 
Help us not to miss the cultural setting to understand that Luke is writing to a specific group of people. But at the same time, there are many applications that can be made to us some 2,000 years later. Lord, I pray that you be with the ones that are sick and out of church today, Lord. I know we have many people struggling with sickness. And I pray that you would be with them and I pray that you would heal them and give them the strength and the grace that they need. We love you so much. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. You know, again, at the end of chapter 7, we saw some amazing things from Stephen's life. And, you know, one of the things that I had made mention of last week that, that really amazed me was at the end of chapter 7, I think starting about verse 55, it says, But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, it's very important that he was full of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit had uh, uh, indwelled within him. And really, the, the point we can make, and we kind of alluded to this in our EQ time last week, that every Christian has the propensity to be full of the Spirit. The same Spirit that filled Stephen up, who was an ordinary person within the church. Now, he was a disciple, but he was, uh, he was a deacon, but he was no apostle. Yet, he took what God had given them, and he used it for God's glory. And he was preaching, and, and really everything that he, is, he was preaching was just from his understanding of scriptures and his teaching and training. And that's, that's what we need to take, that everything that God gives us in, in teaching and training and, and preaching time, that we should take and then in turn give it to other people. But being full of the Holy Ghost... As they're wanting to kill him and taking him outside of the city, and, and again, they're, then they're plugging their ears and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a funny picture here. But he looks up steadfastly into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, now to me, this is significant. Because most of the time in Scripture, when you see Jesus in the throne room, you see Jesus sitting around the throne of God. And I'm not trying to draw too much here, but I think it's significant that Jesus is standing. And, and to me, it's almost as an affirmation. He's standing and saying that, you know what, Stephen, you've been persecuted. People are against you. They don't believe the message that you're preaching. They're, they're calling you a heretic. They're, they're calling you a fool. But it's almost as if Jesus is, is standing there before his father and he's saying, hey, he's mine. I want you to understand that. And that, to me, that, that like stood out to me this week. It's almost as if Jesus is standing there looking down at Stephen. Hey, he's mine. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. What matters is what I think of you. What matters is if you are doing what I have called you to do. And I think Jesus is very pleased and honored with Stephen's life. You see, earth was condemning him, but heaven is commending him. Earth was rejecting him, but heaven is receiving him. It seemed like the world got the victory that day, but Luke shows us that Jesus is supreme and sovereign above all. The Jewish leaders couldn't stand Stephen, so they drug him out of the city and plugged their ears and stoned him to death. And, and really, they got the victory that day. Even the one that was heading them up was, was a great persecutor, Saul. But this event would be very instrumental for his life, for the future. Because as we find out in just another chapter or two, Saul on the road to Damascus saw that glorious light and Jesus speaks to him. Saul was transformed and Saul was saved. And Saul, the Bible references that and Saul, or even or, or Paul referenced that in his letters, but he never forgot that day. And really, how could you? How could you forget the day that you put to death a person that was preaching Jesus Christ? You know, Stephen's death was not in vain. It's very easy to think that it was in vain, but it wasn't. You know, 
He might not have seen in his own life, and his own preaching, many people come to Christ. But because of his death, countless souls were added to the kingdom. Countless souls. And it's very interesting, just quickly, just by way of introduction, what Stephen means. The word Stephen actually comes from the Greek Stephanos, which means crown. In ancient Greece, a wreath or garland crown was given as a prize to the victor in public games. The crown was given to those who overcame. And in Revelation, we're talk, we, uh, we, are, uh, we alluded to the, the fact of a crown or a Stephanos is given to those who overcome trials and tribulation. You see, as Christians, we are called to be a Stephen. We are called to be an overcomer. We are called to glorify God in our trials. Even though the world may throw stones at us, maybe not physical stones, but maybe verbal stones. They try to attack us. And they will hurt, but living a gospel-centric life is worth it. Let me transition into the message this morning. Now, I want to ask a somewhat of a strange question today. And I'm going to get back to it a little bit later in the message. Where is a place that you've thought of that you would never want to go? Jail. Jail. All right, very good. Where's a place you've thought of that you would never want to go? This is very important for the message as we set it up. Anybody? What? Justin, Africa. He's going on our mission trip in March, just a couple months away. Prepare yourself. Julie. Hell. Hell. That's good. What else? Where's a place um, outside of hell, let's, outside of that, outside of the unnatural world and the natural world here on earth? Where's, where's a place that you've never thought of, never wanted to go? Anybody? South America. South America. Okay. She's going to Chile. <laughs> Keep it up. No, Susan. <laughs> China, okay. Where else? Where's a place that you would never want to go? Brother Allen. California. California. All right. Next time we go to San Francisco, you're going with this. All right. I'm just kidding. Who else? Who else? This is important. Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Yeah, that's very terroristic. Yes? Antarctica. Antarctica. You don't like the cold? Not Most that. Texans probably wouldn't want to go to Antarctica. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what else? What else? Maybe a couple more. Anybody? Jordan? Just scratching. No, no, just scratching, just scratching. Randy? The Middle East. The Middle East. Okay, what else? Where's a place you would never want to go? Some of you are scared to answer now. North Korea. Who said that? North Korea. North Korea. Okay. Where else? Maybe one more. Where's a place you never want to go? Anybody? Siberia. Siberia. I mean, there's a lot of places that we can mention. Now, that's very important. It's very important. I want to read something. I want to read a letter that... Adoniram Judson, a very famous missionary of the past, he wrote to his would-be future father-in-law. Now, this is, I want you to listen to this. It's a pretty, pretty bold letter that he wrote asking for Mr. Hazeltine's daughter to marry. Adoniram Judson wrote this letter to Mr. Hazeltine to get permission to marry his daughter, Anne. And listen to this letter. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Now, let's just stop right there. Imagine if someone were writing a letter to you and you had a daughter and they were writing a letter and saying, I want you to consent to give me your daughter to be my wife and you're never going to see her anymore. Like, that's just the start of the letter. How many would be like, all right, you can have her. Probably not, right? So that's how the letter starts. Now, understand that. <clears throat> to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to foreign and dangerous lands, and her subjection to the hardship and suffering of a missionary life. Whether you can consent 
to her exposure to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, perhaps a violent death. Again, probably many of us would just rip up the letter right then. Dude, you've lost your marbles. You're not going to have my daughter. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing, for the sake of immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and for the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from lost nations who are saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? I mean, first of all, I'm like, wow, what a letter. So Adoniram Justin is writing this letter to Mr. Hazeltine wanting to have permission to marry his daughter, Anne. And again, I don't have a daughter, but I can only imagine if I had a daughter and someone wrote a letter to me, I'd be like, dude, there ain't no way I'm going to give up my child knowing that, as you're saying, I'm probably not going to see her again in this world. But as the letter continues, I mean, it was really kind of heart-wrenching and really kind of convicting because he really kind of hit it to where it is in the gospel centrality in the, in the fact that, you know what, uh, for the sake of souls... For the sake of Christ, for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and and died for you and for her. Mr. Hazeltine did consent, amazingly, and allowed Anne to marry Adoniram Judson. And she died there on the mission field. And after she died, over 7,000 Christians were left in a place where previously there had been none. And she joined the long ranks of Christians who can say, it is worth it. Jesus Christ is worth it. And I want you to understand that as we set up this message this morning, and I'm not asking you to, you know, give up your only child. But again, what has God done for us? He gave up his son, was sent to earth, died a cruel death on the cross for the sins of humanity, for the sins of all mankind. And when Jesus left this earth after he rose from the grave and after he ascended into heaven, or before he ascended into heaven, he, he left us with a commission, a mandate, and really more than a mandate, he, he left us with, with a powerful <clears throat> form of obedience that, hey, I've given you a job. I've given you a task. This world, you know, we sing songs like, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And, and really, whether you agree with the doctrine and theology of this song, is beside the point, but here's the truth. This world isn't our home. We are just passing through, and someday there is something far greater waiting for us. And again, and I want you to understand that sometimes we get so, so set on these earthly enjoyments, these earthly thrills, instead of focusing on our Savior and what He's called us to do. You go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 again, because it's the key verse for the whole book of Acts. Jesus Christ sent us into the world. He sent his disciples. Now, the the mission was for them, but it's also for all Christians today. I'm giving you a commission. I'm giving you a mission. And it's not to maintain your status quo, is it? I'm giving you a mission to advance, to go to places that you may not want to go, to reach people that you may not want to reach, to understand that. And Stephen's death, back in chapter 7, as we start chapter 8 is really the catalyst for the mission of Jesus Christ continuing to move forward. Because up until this point, outside of Jerusalem, before Jesus left, they haven't gone outside of Jerusalem. Now, 
Tens of thousands have probably been saved. At least 10, maybe upwards to 20,000 people, as some, some reference and believe, have been saved at this time, which is astounding. But it's only stayed local. It hasn't reached out. So the application for us, if you want to apply it to us, imagine if Jesus had left Texas and, and Wise County and the gospel has only reached Wise County. That's, that's amazing. But it hasn't reached Texas and it hasn't reached America and it hasn't reached the uttermost. So that's what's gone on here. So persecution is what aided the growth of the church. And there's a couple things that we're going to make mention of, and I have a very important application today. And what we're going to see is the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of the church, is on the move. The gospel mission is on the move. <coughs> Excuse me. And the first thing I want you to notice is this. Saul helped persecute people because of the gospel. There are four individuals that we're going to look at through the book of Acts in chapter 8. We're only going to look at two of them this morning, Saul and then Philip. But Saul helped persecute people because of the gospel. Now the disciples within the church are grieving one of their own, and, and again, rightly so. Devout men, verse number 2, carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. I mean, crying and weeping, just as many of us would weep over a friend or a loved, excuse me, a loved one who has died and gone on. But following Stephen's death, great persecution arises against the early church. And believers have to scatter beyond Jerusalem. And we're introduced to Saul, who was a great persecutor of the church, and it was his job to stamp out Christians, to stamp out followers of as they were referred to back in this time, the way. They weren't referred to as Christians. We don't find that until later, I think in Acts chapter 11. But right up until this time, they were referred to as followers of the way. And the reason why they were referred to as followers of the way, because in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am what? I am the way, the way to heaven. So all of these followers were referred to as the way. And Saul is the one <coughs> excuse me, that has approved Stephen's death. And this murder set off a chain reaction of persecution that caused the disciples to scatter throughout the land of Samaria and into Judea. So as it says in verse number one, they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. But I want you to look at verse number three. Saul made havoc. I love, I love the, the, the picture, pictureology there. Saul made havoc of the church. Another way you can put it would be to say this. He was ravaging the church, assaulting believers, both men and women, and put them in prison. Now this phrase is kind of descriptive and comparative of a wild animal just ravaging through. I mean, just imagine, you know, um, you think about um, like a, a lion that's, that's on the loose. You know, a wild animal. And you think about a, you, think about a, you know, it's, it's a pretty stark picture, but you know, if you have a chicken coop and all of a sudden you unleash a, a lion in there, What's going to happen? <laughs> Devastation. Havoc, right? That's kind of what's going on here with the church. Havoc, destruction, devastation, because Saul is now on his mission to, I'm going to destroy this church. I'm going to stamp out Christianity. It's not Christianity. It's followers of the way. But I'm going to stamp out all of these Jesus followers. And the stoning of Stephen, which Saul approved, shows the links to which he would go to achieve his purposes. He persecuted both men and women unto death. He had believers imprisoned and beaten. Now, if they renounced their faith in Jesus Christ, if they would blaspheme, then he would set them free. But if they didn't recant, he would kill them. 
And that's the same thing that we're seeing in some of these terroristic countries today that were even mentioned by some of you. And the first thing, and it's very important to mention going forward, is Saul is persecuting the church because of the gospel. Because the gospel is going forward, Saul decides to persecute them because he wants to stamp it out. He is with those religious leaders in chapter 7 and 6 and 4 that were against Christianity, that were against the apostles, that were against the preaching of Jesus Christ. But then we move on. Verse number 4. We meet another man named Philip. Now this isn't Philip the apostle. This is one of the disciples. And Philip helped transform people because of the gospel. So Saul helped persecute people because of the gospel. And now we have Philip who is transforming people because of the gospel. Therefore, they were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. That is significant. Everywhere they went, they went preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So Philip is going out of his way. We only have mention of this individual. But again, as I said many weeks before, Christianity is really spreading. It's yes, by the apostles and their preaching, but the gospel travels faster around the world through the mouths of ordinary people. Ordinary people have been and will continue to be the tip of the gospel spear. And the gospel has scattered now. But again, and and I'm going to keep making note of this until we understand this. Verse number one, the last three words. They are spreading out. They are scattered about, except the apostles. The apostles are still there. So the people, the church, the disciples are moving out. You know, and this is really indicative of how it should be with us. It's not that the pastor or the preacher, the evangelist, the missionary doesn't do the work, but their job is to equip the people to do the work, to go out, right? To spread out. To be the church. The church is not just confined to these walls. The church is the people, and the people are supposed to go out and preach the word of God to a lost and to a dying world. And there's so much more I want to get to, but here's where I really want to get to in the crux of this message this morning. You see, there's something significant that the Lord kind of revealed to me in my study this week, in my reading of the text, and even in commentaries. And there's, there's these moments. You ever have these moments where not even necessarily in your Bible reading, but you ever have these moments where it's like that light bulb moment? It's like that light bulb just pops on. Like, I get it. That's how it was for me. And there's, there's many times in my study where I have those light bulb type moments where it's like, I see it now. How did, how did I miss this? How did I miss this for all these years? You know, I, I've, I've read the Bible through uh, a couple times at least, you know, probably even more than that. But, you know, there's been many times where I've read it and, you know, I didn't necessarily read it the way I should have read it because I was just reading to try to get through. Anybody ever done that? You know, that, that's not good. That's not healthy. You know, sometimes we set up these plans. You've got to read through the Bible in a year. What purpose is it and what good is it if you read through it in a year if you don't get anything out of it, really? You know, we're missing the, the picture of it sometimes. And I, I've done that and I've been guilty of it. And I'm not against people that are reading through if you're getting something from it. If you're reading to get it to apply, that's great. But if you're reading just to read and skim through so I can check it off my list, say, hey, I read through the Bible this year. Hey, I read it through 15 times in 10 years. Man, praise God for you. But if you got nothing out of it and you missed the big picture, what's it to you? Because we've seen that the religious leaders, they knew God's word, but they were missing the big picture. And again, I'm saying this because there have been times in my life where I've missed the greater picture. You know, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I've already referenced this several times, but go ahead and turn back there. Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. Again, this is so key for the future of the church and for the future of us today as Christians and at Eagle Drive. Verse number 8. 
But ye shall receive power. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit that is going to come to them at Pentecost, which came in chapter number two. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So once Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit is coming to you to give you the power that you need to complete the mission. And ye shall be witnesses. Witnesses of who? Of Jesus, right? Of the words that he has preached and spoken. Unto me, both. Now, then he's talking about where specifically. Now, here's the part that I think I've, I've missed in some way. Again, it's very important to understand this passage and make the application for us. You know, here, here's what I've done. Here's what I've heard many times over before with this passage. It's very easy to equate to us. Jerusalem, that's, you know, that's our city, right? It's our city, our town. Uh, Judea, maybe that's our, 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 our county or, you know, I've even referred to or even heard referred to it. It's our county or it's our, it's our state. And then Samaria, maybe that's our country. And then the uttermost, that's the world. How many have ever heard reference to that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8? Now, that's important. So we have to make the application for us. But we have to remember too, that when you read the Bible, the Bible is written to a specific group of people. Specific group of people. And we have to understand the culture and the context of what is written. So in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when, when Jesus is giving these words that you're going to be witnesses of me in both Jerusalem. Now, that's the, the key city, the capital city of, of Israel. So that's an important city. And in Judea, the, the, the countryside there, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. Now, let me take you back to understand the significance of Samaria. This is where, what God really showed me this week. And it's something I've known, but I've just missed. In 722, King Sargon, the Assyrian Empire, invaded the northern territories of Israel. He had a unique plan to maintain control. He dispersed much of the Jewish population throughout his empire and encouraged intermarriage. He virtually bred the Jewish race, race out of existence in his territories. Within a few generations, no one in Samaria could claim pure Jewish blood. They were, as what was referred to many times, as mixed breeds or hybrids or half-breeds or whatever. Meanwhile, the southern region of Israel, or Judah, withstood Sargon's invasion. They later fell to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. But Nebuchadnezzar did not force intermarriage. Now, some people did intermarry. So when they returned to Judah, most of them started over as a pure race. Jews with Jews, not Jews with Babylonians. The Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Jews looked down on Samaritans as the polluted race. Samaritans despised the elitist snobs that many Jews had become. There were religious hostility between the two. The Jews worshipped in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans established their own temple in Mount Gerizim, also which was the site of the original tabernacle. But neither group recognized the legitimacy of each other's temple. Now, stay with me because this is very significant. When Jesus was calling his disciples to go into Samaria, it wasn't just going to the country, going to your state, as we often reference he was calling them to do something that most Jews would never do. Well, let, that, let that sink in. Because it really just like pff, opened up my eyes to even Scripture even more this week. He was calling them to go to a place that most Jews would never go to. You know, I reference back to John chapter 4, verse 4. And I've preached this passage before where Jesus, when his disciples, what did Jesus say? I must needs go through Samaria. Right? 
Jesus said, I have to go to Samaria. His disciples, his followers are like, no, 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 we can't go to Samaria. Jesus, do you know who these Samaritans are? They're, they're, they're a mixed race. They're, they're, they're hybrids. They're, they're, they're polluted. They're, they're beneath us. We are Jews. They are beneath us. But Jesus said, no, no, I have to go to Samaria. And on his way into Samaria, who did he come across in John chapter 4? The woman at the well. This was a, an adulterous woman, or you know, there's other terminology we can use today to describe her. I'll let you figure that out. Very adulterous woman, and, and really, again, understand this picture. When Jesus is going into Samaria, it's, it's one thing, I mean, the disciples are like, I mean, their minds are blown. Why are we going here? Don't you know who these people are? They're beneath us. Why are we going? I'm not going to talk to them. I'm just going to stay back. And I mean, you want to talk to him, whatever, but I'm not going to talk to him. So Jesus goes in there. Not only is he talking to a Samaritan, but he's talking to the lowest form of a Samaritan. I'm not trying to, you know, be condescending or whatever, but especially in this culture, a woman was the lowest form of a Samaritan for a Jew. And to make matters worse, it wasn't just a woman he was talking to. It was an adulterous woman. So understand that. He's not talking to the elitist in Samaria. He's talking to the lowest of the low. Why would Jesus do that? Because he was teaching his disciples, and I'm not going to go back and preach that whole message, but he was teaching his disciples something that we need to learn. And and really, it's, it's just a simple lesson. It's the fact that grace chases you. Jesus is pouring out grace to those who others have written off. And this encounter, as well as another encounter with with Jesus had with a leper on his way to Jerusalem, reminds me that God's mission is not for the elite. God's mission is not for the select. God's mission is for all. Here's... I don't want to get in trouble today. Here's where we get in trouble, and here's where we get off, off track in America. There are certain places... And certain groups of people, we're seeing this in our country today. There's a great divide in the country, is there not? I mean, the election this year has taught us that. The election in 2016 has taught us that. 2012, 2018. All the elections teach us that there is a great divide within our country. There isn't unity. Both sides of the office or both political parties, the, the major political parties, are, we're trying to bring people together. Are they really going to ever bring people together? No. And all we're seeing, especially now more than ever, is there is a huge divide between Americans. And this is significant because the church is now scattered and everywhere they went, everywhere they went, notice what they did. They went preaching the gospel. Verse number four, back in Acts chapter eight, everywhere they went, they went preaching the word, preaching the gospel. You see, the persecutors didn't intend this to happen. They wanted them to suffer. When they were trying to get them to scatter, it wasn't so they could spread the word. It's so they can get them out of Jerusalem and stop their mission. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants us to get get us off track, to get us out of our comfort zone, to stop us doing what we're supposed to be doing. But this didn't stop the early church, did it? You see, suffering is often inevitable, but God's mission is unstoppable. And for the first time ever, The gospel leaves Jerusalem and it spreads to a place that the Jews did not want to go. And I'm going to reference it here in just a minute. It it goes to a place where the Jews did not want to go. But more importantly, it's spreading through ordinary people and not the apostles. 
I came across the definition this week that I love about an evangelist or evangelism. The writer said, evangelism is this. It's a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through the word and deed. And that's what we see in Acts. Ordinary Christians, ordinary individuals are going out and being evangelists. That's what God has called us all to be as Christians, right? Evangelists, well, I'm not an evangelist like brother so-and-so or pastor so-and-so. If you're a Christian, you are to evangelize. You are to spread the word, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? To be his emissary, to be his sending agents. And I want you to get this quickly. The gospel has transformed this early church. He has transformed these individuals. And write this down. Here's what the gospel creates for us. Four things. First of all, it creates a new identity. We've been talking a lot about identity, the, the traditional model, model and the modern identity and the gospel-centric identity that we're trying to discover as a church here and, and making sure that we are gospel-centric in everything that we do and say. But the gospel creates, first and foremost, a new identity. You see, there is a new you at salvation. You have been blessed and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and accepted and sealed and loved. Your identity is not who you think you are. The gospel, as we've already referred and alluded to in Matthew chapter 10 and in Mark chapter 8, the gospel helps you lose your pre-existing self, your psyche. So first thing the gospel creates is this, a new identity. Second thing is this, the gospel creates a new humanity. You see, the gospel erases all divisions that have been made by the world. Now, I think many of us understand this, but we've been sucked into the belief within our culture. How many races are there in the world? One. There is the human race, and that is it. Now, our culture has segregated us, right? We have put a lot of different races together, and we have made racism an issue. But listen, listen it's not our job to put walls up of division that Christ has already tore down. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that when Jesus came, he came to tear down that middle wall of partition. That middle wall of division. So when Christ tore down that wall of division, what did he do? He tore it down, and what have we done? We've built walls back up. We've segregated where Christ has said there is no segregation. But the gospel creates a new humanity. Listen, listen, this is important. It's not our job to, to put walls back up of division. It's our job to continue to tear down these walls of division. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your past. All of that has been erased in Jesus Christ, has it not? And all of us should be thankful for that. Here's a greater truth. The gospel doesn't erase who you are. And here's, here's what I mean. I am a man. That's not a race because I'm saved. I am white. That's not a race because I'm saved. I am an American. That's not a race because I'm saved. So the gospel doesn't erase that. You know what the gospel does? It outweighs it. Yes, I am still white. I am still an American. I am still a man. That doesn't change. But because of Christ, the gospel is what outweighs cultural preferences. Did you get that? Because of Christ, the gospel outweighs cultural preferences. Now that's important. So we see the gospel creates a new identity, a new humanity. Third thing is this. The gospel creates a new community. You see, this is the local church that really is kind of being formed and started here in Acts after Jesus left. This is the local church. The church is something to be engaged with. 
Because it's loved by Jesus, the church is a community of believers who are called together and unified together under the gospel to carry forth a message to a lost and dying world. And when I think of community, I think of togetherness. I think of oneness. I think of unity. This community, this local church is not a place so that you can make your preferences met. So we don't come to church so we can have our preferences met. You understand that? We do not come to church to have our preferences met. Why don't you all just say that with me? We do not come to church to have our preferences met. Let's say it again. We do not come to church to have our preferences met. But how many times is that the only reason we come to church? So my preferences are met. So the pastor meets the needs that I have for him. I'm not going to that church anymore because they stopped meeting my needs. When was it ever about you? Who is God? The one in heaven? So he is the creator, which makes us, and again, I'm just reminding us, if he is the creator, that makes us what? The creation. So who is it all about? The creator. God. Jesus. The whole Bible is not about us. The Bible was not written to, hey, look how great Chris Thorne is. The Bible doesn't reveal how great I am. It reveals how bad I am and reveals my need for someone greater than me. But again, we don't come to church just so our preferences can be met. This community is in place, listen, to strengthen us, to equip us, to fulfill God's purposes and to make sure his kingdom is being advanced and not yours. The fourth thing, quickly, not only is there a new identity, a new humanity, a new community, but there is fourthly, a new mission. God has given us a new mission. You see, Philip and others are now stewarding the gospel. They are stewards of the grace that God has given. They are fulfilling their gospel mission. Is the gospel mission, is moving the gospel mission forward easy? No, it's not. Because you're going to be met with persecution. You're going to be met with with difficulty. Is moving the gospel mission forward convenient? No, it's not. But are these people in this early church, even though it's not convenient, even though it's not easy, are they being obedient? Yes, they are. Why are they being obedient? Because back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, hey, I want you to go everywhere, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the place that you call home. Did you get that? Not just in the place that you call home. I want you to go to places that are not comfortable. Look, the gospel has so transformed Philip's life that any prejudice that he has against Samaritans was put to death. Did you listen to that? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the EQ time. There are a lot of prejudices today, are there not? Now, we can ask people and we can talk about all preferences or prejudices you know, until we're blue in the face. There are a lot of prejudices today. There are a lot of prejudices within the church, are there not? Yes, there are. But the gospel put to death those prejudices in Philip's life, in Philip's heart. And this, this is important. This, I mean, this is the crux of the message. And I've already kind of alluded to it. Jesus was not calling the disciples to go to a place that was comfortable. Listen, put it down for just a minute. Jesus wasn't calling the disciples to go to a place that wasn't comfortable. That's not what he was calling them to do. 
He wasn't calling them to go to a place that was comfortable. What is comfortable? It's the place that we know, right? It's our home. Again, let's make the application for us today. If you've grown up here in Wise County, this is comfortable to you, right? Because this is home. Or if you've grown up in Texas, this is comfortable to you, right? Because this is home. But God's mission is not always just to go to a place that is comfortable. Are you understanding this? His mission, his commission, listen, don't put it up yet. But he was calling them to go to the place they didn't want to go to reach people they didn't want to reach. That's what the Lord showed me this week. When you talk about Samaria, you can talk about, well, we got to go to our state. We got we to reach people. But still, if you're in America and you're an American, it's still somewhat comfortable for you to stay within America. Is it not? Because you know America. Now, there's certain parts of America I'm just not going to go, right? I'm not going to go to that place. I'm not going to go to that city because I'm going to try to avoid those places. I'm going to try to avoid those types of people within those places. But here's what we have to understand, and here's where we're missing the macro, the, the greater part of the Bible. A gospel identity removes all prejudice. Look, politics will never remove prejudice. Politics will only create more prejudice. The gospel identifies one common problem. You know what that common problem is? Sin. And the gospel identifies one solution. You know what the solution is? Not a new president. Not a new house of representatives. Not more Supreme Court justices that we like. You know what the solution to sin is? A savior. And again, we're missing it. I'm, I'm thankful to be American. I'm, I'm glad we have the right to vote and, and, and exercise those rights. But man, so many of us are missing it. We're so hung up on these elections. that Who cares? Honestly, who cares who's in the office come January, whatever date that is? You know, I, I believe there has been corruption. And, and maybe it'll be stamped out. Maybe it won't. But there's probably been corruption in every election, to be honest. And some of us are, oh, we gotta, we got to get it right. No, we got to focus on Jesus. Come on, church we got to focus on Jesus, and some of us are, are more inclined to, I'm going to post more on social media, and I'm going to get off social media because there are a bunch of liberals, and I'm going to go on this site. We're missing the macro of the Bible to reach people with the gospel, to go to places we don't want to go, to reach people we don't want to reach. But no, I'm going to stay in my comfortable chair, in my comfortable home, in my comfortable city, and do nothing. Why would you say that? Because that's the truth. Because that's where I find myself many times as well. Now, here's a convicting question, and I want you to think about it. Don't answer it. So, as Jesus said, I want you to go to Jerusalem. That's, that is their city. That's where they are from. Reach people where you're from. I want you to go into Judea, Judea, a little outside of your city. I want you to Samaria, which is saying, I want you to reach people that you don't want to reach. So, here's the question. Where is your Samaria? Don't answer it out loud to me, but I want you to think about that. Where is your Samaria? Or I guess we can ask it this way. Who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that are below you? Because if we're honest, there are people below us in our attitudes, right? I don't act like that. Well, our life doesn't say that. Who is your Samaria? Who are your Samaritans? The early church chose to put aside their mistrust 
and suspicion and cultural preference to embrace one another in Christ. Wow. A gospel identity does not happen naturally. And most of us have truths ingrained in us that are pretty difficult to overcome. Victor Hugo once wrote, There is one thing stranger than all the armies of the world. He says, That is an idea whose time has come. Now, the gospel is more than an idea. The gospel is dynamite. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power, it is the dunamis, it is the dynamite that brings salvation. What causes the gospel mission to move, move forward? Losing your pre-existing self. And here's what it comes to. Those who believe the gospel, behold the gospel, become like the gospel. And I like how one, one, one of the commentaries I was reading this week said, the early church, what they did is they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. And what, they, what, what he meant was everywhere they went, they were spreading it. They weren't lying about it, but they were spreading it. They were preaching it. They were teaching it because anyone they met was another person they're supposed to reach out to. Persecution didn't stop them. Relocation didn't stop them. And Philip exemplified an individual who lived on mission. Go ahead and put that slide up now, Ian. Jesus was not calling them to go to a place they didn't want to go, or he was calling them to go to a place they didn't want to go to reach people they didn't want to reach. Leave that up there. And get this, and I've already been saying this, but that's the truth of this message. And that's what, that's what the Lord showed me. He was calling them to a place they didn't want to go, Samaria, to reach people, Samaritans, they didn't want to reach. So who is your Samaria? Who are your Samaritans? Who are the people that are beneath you? Those are the people that God has called you to reach. His church. And again, this isn't a message to try to pump up missions trips. It's not what it's about. But I, I know some people will never go on a missions trip because they cannot move out of their comfort zone. Or, I am not going to that place. I'm not going to die over there. I'm not going to get stuck over there. When was it ever about you? See, we have to get beyond ourselves. We have to realize that our mission is not for our own kingdom. And again, we are so good at our own kingdom. Our mission is to advance his kingdom. So here's the, the macro of this message. You know, as the gospel mission is on the move, it is moving to the place the Jews didn't want to go to reach people they didn't want to reach. Every head bowed, every eye closed.